And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. day of the week and Michael Leibowitz joining me this morning. We're going to be talking about zero DTE and what that has to do with the crash of 87 this morning. So um, just kind of an interesting, we've talked a little bit about this before in our daily commentary, which is on our website, by the way. If you want our daily market commentary, we send it out every morning at 730 uh, before the market opens, kind of give you a quick snapshot of the market. You subscribe at the website, its own separate email list. So just go to the daily commentary on the homepage, click the subscribe button, and uh, you'll start getting our daily market update. Uh, But we talked about zero DTE, which is zero days to expiration. So it has a lot to do with what happens in the underlying options market. But interestingly enough, there's a similarity to what's happening in the options market now and what happened back in 1987, I know. That was the last century. (laughs) Surely makes you feel old when you say that, you know, but yeah, that was the last century this happened, but you know, happens every once every hundred years, right? We're almost there. Um, So quick uh, market update. Uh, Yesterday, the market sold off early in the morning. Um, Everybody was like, well, the rally's over. And nope, not really, because we came down and we talked about the need for a retest of both the 200-day moving average and the declining trend line that goes back to January of 2022. And we said, what we need is a successful retest of that. That occurred yesterday. We had a very nice uh, downtick open in the morning, tested the 50-day moving average, which, by the way, is very close to crossing above the 200-day moving average. So we've got a a lot of of more bullish indicators really starting to line up here for the market. We talked about this inverse head and shoulders pattern recently that suggests that the bottom of the market is in right now. Um, The market retesting important support trend lines yesterday, moving back above that by the close, almost uh, closed a little bit even yesterday. So again, very positive action here. Now, the only thing that hasn't happened at this point is a breakout above this kind of consolidation range we've been in here lately. Yes, we're moving above that downtrend line. That's very encouraging, but the market hasn't made a significant move higher. Now, next week is the FOMC meeting and kind of everybody's a little tentative right now going into the FOMC meeting. What are they going to say? Or is is Jerome Powell going to come smack down the market again? And that's certainly possible he's going to try. Um, Again, financial conditions are easing. That's not what the Fed wants to see here. But look, anything that, you know, comes out uh, on the more dovish side, uh, this is our last rate hike, or we're very close to quitting, uh, you know, hiking rates, et cetera. You could see a very explosive move higher. So don't discount this. And the risk is going to be, you're going to have one shot at this, pretty much. (laughs) If if something comes out more dovish next Wednesday, this market's going to pop by 3 to 5% in a day, and that, that's going to be pretty much the run. It'll be over at that point. So either you're going to be in it, participating in it, or you're going to miss it. It's just going to be that easy. Uh, we're not out of the woods by any stretch of the imagination. We still have a lot of stuff to work through, of course, uh, in terms of economic data. Uh, that is going to get weaker here as we uh, potentially go a little bit further into the year as all these rate hikes catch up with economic growth. Um, earnings are starting to you know, deteriorate a, a good bit. We're seeing companies come in, miss revenue guidance, miss earnings guidance a bit here, uh, seeing some softening in corporate profit margins. That's certainly going to uh, you know, contribute to the valuation angst 
uh, in the market as well. But that doesn't mean that we have to set new lows. So again, when we start to look at what's kind of happening technically in the market, there is substantial improvement. It doesn't mean necessarily the final bottom is in. We could certainly have another leg lower uh, this summer, not outside the, the, the realm of possibility here. But what we are starting to see here is a much better technical formation of the market that suggests, at least in the short term, that the, the potential trend of the market remains higher. Uh, again, we haven't confirmed this, this improvement yet because we haven't broken out. So we need to make a move above these recent kind of high levels we've been at the last few days. We need to see some kind of umph. Uh, to the markets. A little bit of commitment here. That's one thing that we've lacked. You know, while the markets are still on our buy signal, that's been helping lift the market here recently. We haven't seen a day where we've had a very strong advance in stocks really across the board. We have a lot of good participation. The number of stocks above the 200-day moving average certainly getting very in, in, in very bullish territory, right? I mean, we just have a large number of stocks above their 200-day moving average participating. 50-day uh, stocks above their 50-day, large number there participating. Bullish, uh, the number of stocks on what we call bullish buy signals, the bullish percent, that is that has been improving nicely here as well. So again, you know, when we look at the underlying technicals of the markets, certainly a lot of encouraging data there that suggests potentially some of the worst is behind us. And you can kind of start looking for these opportunities of companies that are reporting earnings and then not really going down that much, <clears throat> even though if they report bad earnings. A good example of that was yesterday, Microsoft announced earnings. Initial revenue guidance and earnings guidance was good, kind of in line with estimates. Their outlook was really bad uh, for the rest of this year. They guided down, the CFO had pretty bad things to say. Stock opened down 4%, recovered all of that yesterday. Uh, basically ended about flat yesterday, just slightly uh, down uh, in, in, uh, from where it opened. But the important thing here is that despite that bad news, Microsoft began to recover here. And again, we're starting to see this, and we talked about this previously, right? If you're looking for companies to start adding to your portfolio, look for companies that are reporting less than good news in terms and, uh, of their earnings announcements and the stocks aren't going down because that suggests that a lot of that bad news has already been priced into the stock. So, you know, you take a look at companies like an Amazon, right? We haven't seen the earnings yet, but if Amazon announces reduced earnings and the stock doesn't go down much, may very well tell you we're getting close to a bottom in some of these stocks. So again, this is the time to kind of start going through and looking for opportunities where they exist and you know, part of what is going to be one of the challenges this year is stock picking because of the impact of passive investing. We've talked about this before. When people pile money into ETFs, it just fuels the top stocks in the indexes because they're such a large percentage of the index itself. And so that absorbs a lot of those inflows. So you know, while you're looking at some of these companies and, and a lot of these people are, uh, you know, kind of a lot of the headlines are like, oh, stocks have to crash a whole lot more. You got to be careful with that because of what's happening with passive indexing. And, and this is why the market didn't decline as much as we saw, la thought, everybody thought it would last year uh, in particular, because you had, you had very large inflows into passive indexes all year last year that helped support a lot of these companies. And that's why you didn't see these big drawdowns in the overall market because of the impact of passive investing. And that's gonna be something that we're just gonna be, have to deal with going forward. That's not gonna change. So if your bias is, 
and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm still getting a lot of emails right now. It's like, <laughs> I got one this morning that said, you know, I'm worried about the government going out of business, right? Because of all the debt. It's not going to happen. You, you got you to gotta set some of these things aside. Come back over here into the world of reality and what we live. And, you know, we have to invest accordingly, right? We have to invest for what's happening now. And, and if you get into this camp where, you know, the end of the world is coming, you're going to miss a lot of really good potential opportunity to make some money uh, heading into your retirement. So, again, these are the things that we need to think about. So coming up today uh, with Michael Leibowitz, we're talking about zero DTE, why that has a lot, a lot of look like uh, the crash of 87 and what that means. Um, but also talking a little bit about this, you know, problem that we have in the markets right now of, I want to be a value investor, but I can't buy value, right? So, you know, this, this is going to be one of the real challenges this year is actually stock picking because of changes in economic dynamics and what's happening with passive indexing and others makes this a much more challenging market than we've seen before. Talk about more of this after the break. Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Make sure you subscribe to our new Before the Bell channel. That's our, that's our previous three minutes on markets and money. We now have its own channel called Before the Bell. Subscribe to that on YouTube. You can get it right off our front page of the Real Investment Advice show, uh, realinvestmentadvice.com. But just click there and subscribe so you make sure you get those updates as well. Be right back after the break. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Housekeeping. Getting your financial house in order for the new year need not be a tedious task. Our next Candid Coffee will get you ready for the fiscal roller coaster 2023 promises to be with financial tips and talk. Saturday, January 28th with Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. The Financial Housekeeping Candid Coffee with Ratliff and Rosso. Register today at realinvestmentadvice.com. realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show this morning at 617 uh, as we kind of get things underway here. Michael Lee would show you this morning. One of the interesting, you know, kind of underpinnings of the market over the last year, and we've talked about this from time to time, we've written about it on a little bit uh, here and there, as well as our newsletter, as well as our daily commentary, is what's been happening in the options market. And, you know, there's a lot of conundrum right now, um, particularly when it comes to the volatility index, right? Because the volatility index has remained very low, despite the fact that the market declined, you know, 20% last year, the market, the, the volatility in the market remain very suppressed relative to what you would have expected in a bear market. Normally, when you have a bear market, you have big spikes in volatility and, and this type of thing. Um, and that's why the volatility index is called the, the fear gauge, because it measures how people are you know, positioning themselves and whether they're buying call options or put options, or they, which kind of represents are they being more bearish or more bullish, right? If they're buying a whole lot of put options, you know, they're preparing for a crash, right? And if they're if they're not buying any call uh, put options, they're buying all call options, then they're not worried about a crash, right? So so the the volatility index kind of measures that to a degree. And one of the conundrums has been is why is it not measuring that? Because we never really saw the volatility index get very high last year and and currently right now it's sitting right around 20, which is a fairly low level for the volatility index, basically saying that individuals aren't really 
worried too much about the markets. But th there is a there's an underlying event that's been going on lately, and we've written, like I said, we've written and talked about this, called zero DTE, which is zero days to expiration. And these are very short dated calls. They're they're calls with less than 24 hours to maturity. And there's been an overwhelming surge in that activity, which, by the way, the VIX does not measure. So the question now becomes as has the VIX been undermined by market activity? And is the VIX not really sending us a good signal about the markets? Talk more about this and why there's a potential similarity to 1987. Uh, Michael's joining us this morning. Mike, what do you think? So it's it's really interesting and it brings up a lot of different potential issues. And I would just say the first thing is, Lance, that the zero, as we talk about it, just keep in your head that the zero DTEs uh, options, basically one day options, can be puts or calls. So as we talk about this and we're talking about the effects and maybe it's bullish, maybe it's bearish, it can be both. So it's not a bullish or bearish commentary on the market. I think it's more of a market, uh, an instability creating potential tool. So when I, uh, you know, as I kind of been reading more about it and thinking about it, there's a lot of things come to my mind, but one was 1987. And if you go back to 1987, there were quite a few reasons that the market was in trouble. And if you remember, the market fell over 20 percent on Black Monday in late October 1987. Um, so one of those, there were taxes, the market had really run higher, valuations were running high. So I'm not discounting all the other factors, but one of them was a thing called portfolio insurance. And what portfolio insurance did was institutional investors could go to their brokers, the old, you know, back then Solomon Brothers, Payne Weber, uh, you know, a whole Hope Merrill Lynch, a whole bunch of brokers and say, hey, I want insurance in case the market goes down. The market's pretty lofty. I I'm scared it's going down. Can can I buy insurance? And believe it or not, in 1987, there were computer algorithms. And these computer algorithms were, you know, very simple compared to today's. But the gist of them was if the market starts going down, short, short the S&P 500 futures on behalf of these clients. And if you're doing that, you're essentially hedging someone's equity portfolio or limiting the potential losses. The problem with it is, A, a lot of people were doing it. B, it was computer driven. So as the market went down, these computers had to short the market. When they short the market, it pushes the market down. As the market went down, they had to short more. And it becomes this circular problem that got out of control. Then at some point when the market's down five, six, seven percent, individuals and non-algorithmic uh, institutional investors start panicking. They knew the market was over evaluated. And it was like, uh oh, this is it. This is the 1929 event. They start panicking. They start selling, which gets the algorithms to sell even more. And you had this circular circular pattern that that resulted in the biggest one day percentage loss ever. Um, and th this was not unpredictable. There were there were many signs that the market was unstable, that this insurance could work both ways. 
it can help drive the market higher because they would buy futures as the market went higher and sell them as it went lower. Uh, in fact, there was a Wall Street Journal article only a week before that said portfolio insurance could snowball into a stunning route for stocks. Um, so, so how's that different? How's that the same or different from zero DTE options that we're dealing with today? So, for starters, uh, they're very different, and our computers are obviously much more. It, you know, they're not even. You can't even compare what we have today to what we had in 1987. But the, the commonality is that these zero day options, if I go and I'm actually starting to write an article about this, I'll put it out for next Wednesday. And what I did yesterday was I said, OK, Tesla earnings were after the close. And I started writing this around noon or so, one in the afternoon. I said, let me put myself in a hedge funds position. I can buy a, a call option that expires after today's close, so a day after earnings, essentially a zero DTE. And why would I do that? So first of all, the option is expensive. So I could buy an option for roughly 1% of the value of my holdings. Now that option is at a higher price than the current stock price. So in this case, Tesla was trading around 145, I think it was. And I was looking at options that expired that struck at 160. So if the stock got above 160, I would I have the option to buy the stock at 160. Now, here's what's important to realize. What I'm doing is seems very speculative, right? If the earnings are good, the stock's gonna go to 170 and I could make 10 bucks per option, which would be a huge gain, a massive gain odds are it's not going to get up to 160. Uh, but here's what's going on behind the scenes and that I don't think a lot of people are thinking about. Someone sold me that call. It just didn't appear out of thin air. Someone sold it. And nine times out of 10, it's a bank broker selling those calls. Bank brokers just don't take the other side of risk trades like that and are not willing to lose significant amounts of money on a bet they work like Vegas. They're working for the VIG. They're not they're not really putting too much money on either side of what customers and clients are doing. So so the bank has to hedge it. So how do they hedge it? Well, the the, the benefit for the customers if the stock price goes up. So as the stock price goes up, they buy shares. So if you had a hundred if I was doing this on a hundred shares of Tesla, it would cost me one hundred thirty six dollars. The dealer, as that stock rises, has to buy shares of Tesla. They probably started, based on my math, and I'll explain this more in the article next week, they probably started off with about 15 shares. This morning, the stock is trading much closer to that strike, and they probably now own 60 shares. Um, so they have probably bought about $8,000 worth of stock for my $136 worth of stock. As they're buying, they're pushing the price higher, and they have to buy more. And this isn't about me and my hundred, you know, my one option and the dealer hedging it. This is about a lot of people. And it can and it will distort the value of Tesla. That's not what bothers us. What bothers us is that these same bets are being made on the S&P 500 and they're being made on uh, FO on the Fed day. They're being made on CPI day, inflation day, unemployment day. And what happens 
if the bets are right. Then again, puts or calls up or down. What happens if they're right? And the Fed, the Fed, you know, say there's a bunch of puts for next week's Fed meeting. The Fed surprises us and goes 50 or the Fed surprises us and says we're not stopping where we told you we were stopping, whatever it may be. The market starts trading lower, significantly lower. All these dealers have to hedge their options. They have to start shorting the index. And again, you could get this snow snowball effect that could create turn a two to three percent loss into a much bigger loss or gain. Well, we, so, and we've seen so that, though, in the, in the last thing. CPI reports, in the last, you know, FOMC meeting, uh, you know, meeting days, we've seen the market move up, you know, two or three percent on a CPI day and five and a half percent on a on a Fed day. So, you know, we've seen these, you know, outsized moves that just come out of nowhere, um, you know, on these big announcement days. Right. Right. So hold on till next Wednesday. I'm trying I'm writing an article and I'm trying I'm going to try to make it more simplified. I know that that may seem complex what I was just talking about, but hopefully by next Wednesday, I'll get it to to a good point where you can see the math, understand it and understand how when they're done in mass, it can really distort markets in a very unstable fashion. Again, both up or down. Yeah. And, and this but this is the you know part of, you know, and the importance about this is is, is that this is something that has only recently become an issue you know the zero dte options didn't make up much of the market now they make up almost one-third of all the options activity so it's a very significant change over the last couple of years of since we started this kind of whole stimulus injection into the markets and people day trading online through Robinhood apps you know etc you know, we've seen this very, very large move um, or increase in these very short dated options, which are very, very speculative. I mean, either you make money or you lose everything. I mean, that's it, right? You're not losing a lot, theoretically. You can make a lot on betting a little. So it's very enticing for a speculator, but it's, it's also distorting potentially what's happening in markets. All right, come back from the break, talk a little bit about the Fed next week. What are they gonna say, right? That's gonna be the big question, don't go away. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com housekeeping getting your financial house in order for the new year need not be a tedious task our next candid coffee will get you ready for the fiscal roller coaster 2023 promises to be with financial tips and talk saturday january 28th with richard rosso and danny ratliff register now at realinvestmentadvice.com the financial housekeeping candid coffee with ratliff and rosso register today at realinvestmentadvice.com realinvestmentadvice.com you're listening to The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show this morning. So next Wednesday is, of course, the Fed meeting. And this is kind of what's got everybody kind of on edge right now a little bit. You know, what's the Fed going to say? It's, it's pretty much a guarantee at this point that they're going to hike 25 basis points. Could they come out and surprise the markets with a 50 basis point hike? Sure. But 
if you look at Fed funds futures, it's a, a almost 100% lock that it's a 25 basis point hike next week. And that's really not the key issue, right? Them hiking another 25 basis points has already been factored into the market. So the market's already looking at the Fed reaching their terminal rate and stopping hiking rates. And then, of course, the expectation is the Fed will be cutting rates by June or July. That's why markets have been doing much better as of late, is this pricing in of what they believe the Fed is going to do. The risk is the Jerome Powell speech after the meeting, right? So the meeting will come out. They'll they'll say, hey, you know, here's the... The, the release of the statement, and the statement is we're raising 25 basis points. You know, we see the employment market remaining strong. Inflation is coming down. You know, that's what it's going to say. And then, then Jerome Bowles is going to take the stand and do his press conference, and that's where things typically go haywire <laughs> because this is where uh, back in September, as a good example, at the Jackson Hole Summit meeting, markets were rallying into the meeting expecting a Fed pivot, Jerome Powell tears up his prepared speech 15 minutes before he was supposed to give it, writes a whole new one that's very short that just basically says, we're going to hike rates to the moon and you better get out of the markets and the, and the markets decline. In October, the markets bottom started rallying into December. And at that Fed meeting, the Fed comes out again and says, we're still hiking rates, folks, and markets decline. So that's the risk going to this meeting. This markets are rallying once again. Um, you know, after that decline in December, markets have been rallying again since January. We've had a very strong January run here. Expectations are that the Fed's going to pivot. This is we're, we're back to that that hope of the Fed pivot. The question is, is what Jerome Powell is going to say? You know, and we've talked about the importance of financial conditions, which is how easy is monetary policy relative to the economy? How easy is it for people to get access to credit? Um, do or are they confident, right? Consumer confidence is an important measure here. Are they confident about the future? Ironically, over the last couple of months, consumer confidence has been improving. Outlooks for the next one to five years on inflation coming down. Expectations for higher incomes going up. Consumer confidence overall ticking up in the most recent report. So all of a sudden, consumers are feeling more confident which means they'll go out and spend more money, which will help support economic growth, which will keep inflation running high, which is exactly the opposite of what the Fed's trying to accomplish. So this is going to be the big question. You know, what does the Fed do uh, Wednesday? Mike, what are your thoughts? So I, I think they're going to remain tough. I think they're going to talk about financial conditions. What what uh, I, I think this is going to be one of those uh, meetings and one of those press conferences where he kind of totes the line. And then it becomes, what does the market want to hear that he said? Is it bullish, is it bearish? Um, the, the, the financial conditions, like you talked about, and the Fed has said this, that's about stocks, bonds, and the dollar. Well, let's look at those three. The stocks, stocks have been doing better. They've certainly stabilized, and they've been on a recent uptrend. Bond yields have come down. Not significantly, but they've come down and the dollar has actually fallen a lot. All three of those add to easier financial conditions, which, like you said, Lance, creates better sentiment, not just among individuals, but among corporations as well. So so in the back of Powell's mind, he has to be thinking, well, now the odds are people are going to spend more than they would have. Do I need to knock the markets down more? to kind of take that financial conditions 
gauge, whatever you want to call it, back down a little bit, take it down a notch. Um, and I, I, honestly, I'm not sure. And that's why I think he's going to kind of tote the line, say everything he has said for the last couple meetings, and the market will interpret that as it may. There's going to be talk about we're, we're toning down. We're only going to do 20. Most likely, they're going to do 25. If they're really trying to send a message to the markets that they're not, they don't like the stock markets going up, they'll do 50. And that will be a shock. But odds are, 99% odds are, we believe it. We ev Almost everyone thinks that they're going to do 25. And they're going to peter out with another one or two 25s to end this hiking campaign uh, sometime between next uh, Wednesday and May, uh, depending on how many more they do. And the, the question then becomes inflation. Does it keep coming down? They're going to wait. They're going to stall. This is the stall. Everyone knows the stall is coming. The stock market knows it's coming. The Fed is kind of telling you it's coming. So again, I think it's I think they tote the line. They say everything they've been saying. And how does the market take it? If the market's at the upper end of its range, the market may trade off a little because it wasn't as bullish as they thought it might be. If the mar if next Wednesday the market's down 100, 150 points from where it is today, it the same exact speech, uh, testimony, and uh, press conference may come off very bullish. So, you know, we just have to wait and see. But, you know, the the thing that that I think will be more important with this one is not what he says, but how the market interprets it. And it. You know, again, I think that's a function of price and how the media approaches it and initial trading after he says certain things within his press conference. Well, you know, and a couple of things about, it, you know, the, here, here's the here's the problem, though, for investors is that, you know, the market is decidedly much more bullish right now. I mean, we're we had a nice successful retest of the downtrend yesterday, tested the 50 and the 200 day. The 50 is getting ready to cross above the 200 day. Lots of bullish stuff that's going on right now with the markets. Um, if the if Jerome Powell does come out with a statement that the market deems as fairly, you know, bullish or optimistic, you know, this market could move, you know, three four percent in a day. We've seen, and again, going back to our zero DT options uh, conversation a second ago, um, you know, we could see the market move three four five percent to the upside. We've seen that, you know, several times, you know, this year already, so or last year already, so. You know, these very outsized moves become problematic because if you're not in, you're going to miss the move and then you're going to wind up trying to chase stocks. Um, you know, so how do you how do you play that potential where you are? Right. So it's a tough one. It, it's really a tough one because the Fed could go either way. The Fed has not been friendly to the stock market at prior meetings. So you may add on a little more equity exposure only to get burnt. You may not add on enough exposure and the market jumps five, seven percent because they like what he had to say. Um, and, and this is where it gets very difficult because we're at this technical junction where we're sitting right below or right on a critical uh, line of resistance that has been a perfect indicator, a perfect resistance point for the last year. Every time it hits this line, it fades. Uh, we're sitting near the, you know, I think we're right above the 200-day moving average now, right? Actually, we're above both right now. Yeah. So, so we're at the point where the market can run if it wants to run. But we're also, we haven't cleared those hurdles enough to say all clear. Mm -hmm. So the market could 
just bounce right back off those and head significantly lower. So, so you have to juggle the technical juncture with the economic fundamental uh, situation. And the fact of the matter is the Fed is still going to raise rates one, two, three more times. They're still doing QT. In fact, there's a Wall Street Journal article talking about QT going on for a few years and how the Fed would manage that. So they're going to be pulling liquidity from the markets. And then there's the elephant in the room that Lance and I talk about ad nauseum, and that's the lag effect. All those 75 basis point rate hikes from last year are just starting to be felt into the economy. And how much will they affect economic activity going forward? How much will they affect inflation? And that's the unknown. And that's what we will, as economic data starts coming out, especially in February and you know, as we get into spring, April, May, that's when we're going to find out if the lag, how, how much these interest rate hikes truly affected the economy. And you know, you're juggling all these balls in the air uh technicals are great for the short term fundamentals liquidity are better for the medium and long term and they're they're starting to become at odds with each other mm-hmm. so you know i think it puts investors in a really tough position going into wednesday's meeting yeah no and that's and that that is the challenge right and and again cuz you know at the end of the day you're trying to make some money in the markets and trying to grow your savings and you know it's it's very challenging environment again on one side, again it's very easy to make a bearish case right valuations fundamentals uh, lag effect of interest rates, you know, all those type of things. Certainly, all valid, very valid reasons why this market, you know, could go down. Um, but there's also this kind of underlying technical support that continues to to point to the fact that the markets are trying, or our markets are defying that. Right there, the markets are going higher and and pricing in. Really, earnings season has not been great so far. Markets are taking in stride. Uh, we talked about Microsoft at the open of the bell uh, in, in the opening segment this morning. You know, ported you know pretty bad outlook, and yet the stock recovered you know all of its opening loss yesterday. So you know the stock's holding in there very well. So this becomes a, a much bigger challenge for investors. How do I allocate money? How do I invest capital? And you know one of the things that we've talked about before is that you can't necessarily go buy what Wall Street deems as value stocks because they're not value. <laughs> so, you know, there's the, and then, but there's the passive indexing problem. You have all these money, people buying passive ETFs that's fueling asset prices at the top. We'll talk some more about that after the break about value and what's not value. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Housekeeping. Getting your financial house in order for the new year need not be a tedious task. Our next Candid Coffee will get you ready for the fiscal roller coaster 2023 promises to be with financial tips and talk. Saturday, January 28th with Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. The Financial Housekeeping Candid Coffee with Ratliff and Rosso. Register today at realinvestmentadvice.com. realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. 
and welcome back to the show this morning. Uh, so value investing, you know, this is one of the key tenets of investing long term, right? Uh, Warren Buffett, others, you know, buy companies that, you know, have strong cash flow, solid balance sheet. Seems logical, right? You want to buy something at a discount uh, to its fair value, and that's how you make money, right? Markets used to work that way. Um, you could buy companies that were trading at less than book value or trading at very low price to sales ratios, et cetera. And, and that was a almost a surefire guaranteed avenue of success in making money in the stock market. The problem has become, of course, is markets have evolved. And, you know, the first step of that evolvement, we went from fractional share trading to decimals, and then we automated a lot of systems and uh, we've brought in more and more computer programs, algorithms, and, you know, now we trade at the speed of light and uh, the average holding period for stocks has fallen from six years to less than six months. So we're all traders now, not investors. But one of the biggest impacts to the markets has been the evolution of exchange traded funds, which on the surface sounded like a great idea, right? Um, you know, I have an ETF that is very low cost, kind of replaces the mutual fund industry to a, to a degree. And I can buy, instead of having to buy an individual stock, right, I'm, I'm trying to pick the stock of, you know, Procter & Gamble or McDonald's or Coke. I just buy the whole sector. I think, I think consumer staples this year will outperform discretionary. So I buy the staples ETF. Or I think the market's going to go up this year, so I buy the S&P 500 index. Well, the evolution of ETFs have caused a problem that was unintended. You know, it's always the unintended, uh, the unintended consequences of things that occur. And one of the unintended consequences of ETFs is that it is distorting markets to a degree. Because as we've explained before, and we've written articles about this, um, you know, back in January of 2020, and we wrote an article coming into, into uh January 2022, where markets were at their peaks, and we said, look, every dollar that comes into an ETF funds, 30% of that dollar goes into the top 10 stocks in the index, Apple, Microsoft, NVIDIA, Tesla at the time, right? Those were in the top 10 stocks. So 30 cents of every dollar put into an S&P 500 ETF, as an example, goes into those top 10 stocks. So that creates a lot of buying for those stocks and keeps those asset prices elevated. Well, the problem is it's not just one ETF. Apple, as an example, at that time, was in almost 400 different ETFs. Uh, Mike and I just uh, yesterday, or Monday, I can't remember which day it was now, um, <clears throat> we were looking at a dividend aristocrat ETF, and we were looking at a value index. Now, Good example, Microsoft reported earnings yesterday. Earnings weren't great, right? Stock was stock held in there, but earnings weren't great. Microsoft trades at eight times price to sales. Now, at no point in history has eight times price to sales been considered a value at any level, yet it's the number one holding in the value index we were looking at. So every time somebody buys a value index, it runs, it pushes up the stock price of Microsoft. Procter & Gamble. We've talked about these stocks on the show before. Procter & Gamble, Coke, McDonald's, Nike. These are not value stocks. They're deemed value by Wall Street, but they're not value. And so the problem for an investor now becomes, if I buy what Wall Street deems as value, I'm not really buying value. 
But if I do buy value, if I buy real value, I get no participation because the ETFs don't buy those stocks. It's a very big conundrum, Mike. You know, how do you solve this problem as an investor? Here's the problem. The problem is that the fund manager gets paid on the assets that they're managing. So they are heavily incentivized to grow the fund as large as they can. And if you're talking about a large cap technology fund, that's not a problem because there's a lot of massive companies out there you can buy. But when you start talking about value, you start having to stretch the meaning of value so that your population of what you can potentially buy is larger. And what we find that a lot of these firms do is they use the word value loosely as what I would say is perceived value. So we, you know, ask anyone, they'll tell you that Procter Gamble, Clorox are value stocks, right? They're conservative, they're stable. You can count on them in a recession. They seem value oriented, but they're really not. The, they, they, you know, Procter Gamble has a PE that's higher than the S&P 500, just like Microsoft in uh, the example Lance just gave. So in order to, to make these value funds as large as they can make them, they, they have to, I'm going to say it, ignore the word value. So what, so what can we do? Well, luckily, we are not beholden to a, a strategy. So we can go out and we can buy companies like we just bought Stanley Black & Decker. Um, we can also buy Procter Gamble because the problem that we face is that will investors flock to real value, we'll call Stanley uh, Black & Decker real value, or will the funds continue to flow in from their 401ks into perceived value, Procter Gamble? And Which we own, by the way. Have to, what's that? <laughs> Which we own, by the way. Which we own, by the way, because one of our themes this year is that investors are gonna sh are going to put more of an emphasis on value dividend type stocks. So the question is, how do they do that? Do they do it in smaller funds? Do they do it in stock trading, one-off stock trading, kind of like what we do to some degree? Or do they do it in their 401k where they're just going to move from their 10% of their S&P 500 fund to a value fund and think that they're going to insulate, you know, de-risk their portfolio? And that's why we have to watch flows in and out of ETFs and mutual funds watch the performance between the value stocks like Stanley that are not in these big, they're, they're in the ETFs. But for instance, in the big value ETFs, Stanley is 0.06, 0.07% versus one and a half to two and a half percent for Procter Gamble. But you look down the, the list of valuations and and uh, keep wanting to say Southwest and Stanley, uh, Stanley Black & Decker is a third to half the valuation. It, you know, from a pure valuation, it makes no sense. Oh, and by the way, Stanley is growing revenue and earnings per share at a much faster rate than Procter Gamble over the last 10 years and in recent years. So from a pure business perspective, if someone said, hey, you can buy this business or this business, you know, unless you see something in the future that's very different from the last five or 10 years, Stanley's a no-brainer. But that's not the question as investors. We have to know is where are investors going to invest in the future? And that's where we can get very torn between what we perceive as value and what the market thinks is value. 
Yeah, and this is and in the end, you know, we have to almost play two sides of the coin. Again, we have to, we own Procter and Gamble. Why? Because it's in the top ten holdings of the index. So money flows go into the index, it buys Procter and Gamble. You know, hopefully what we'll get is see some migration of investors buying things like a Stanley Black and Decker, um, and and see that price appreciation pick up, you know, substantially as people start to gravitate towards real value. The question is, is you just don't know how this is going to play out, you know, over the course of a year. So, <laughs> you know, we kind of hedge our bets a little bit by playing both sides of the coin. And, and uh, right. you know, it, it's tough to, it, and again, it's just, you know, it's a very tough environment to be a pure value investor because if you're buying pure value stocks, they have not performed all that great in a lot of cases. And, you know, this is, this is going to be one of the challenges this year, and, and particularly as we kind of look out for the rest of this year, as to, to you know, if we do have you know weaker economic growth, if we do have falling inflation that that will compress profit margins, that is going to impact some of these companies that may be in the top of the indexes, but you know are going to struggle in that type of environment versus companies that may actually benefit from that type of an environment where people are making a shift uh, away from. You know, having other people do things, as in the case of Stanley Black and Decker, uh, having other people do things to doing it themselves, you know, doing their own home repairs, those type of things. That's, you know, potentially a consideration to look at. And, and here's the other thing. If it's another rough year, most likely we're going to see a shift towards more conservative portfolios. So that may help value, but it also may mean that that investors are saying, you know what, I was 80-20, 80% stocks, 20% bonds. I'm going to go to 60-40. Bond yields are high. I can make 4%-ish. Mm -hmm. Why not just take the 4% and run? So they'll, they'll change their allocation from 80% equities to 60%, meaning that they're going to have to sell those funds. Yep. So, so as part of that move, say they have to sell a value fund. They're, that value fund is selling a lot more Procter Gamble than it is Stanley. So Stanley can withstand that selling much better than Procter Gamble. So, you know, to some degrees, it's also has to do with what the market's going to do and how investors are going to think about risk. Exactly. So, um, you know, as, as we kind of the, the kind of the sum up all this here today is is really just we have no idea what the next three months are going to be like in the markets versus the next six months. And and this is the big challenge and why we focus so much on, you know, the technical structure of the market near term, because that is decidedly much more bullish. Um, if you take a look at what the herd, the market, you know, the market psychology is telling you, it's telling you that there's a much more bullish bias to the markets right now, but there's still risk. And so as a portfolio manager and, and, and as, you know, managing client funds in particular, We've got to take both of these into, in, in, uh, you know, both of these into our equation of managing risk, and it may mean that we underperform a bit here in the short term until this market really declares itself and we get a much better view about where the market's headed. But it'll be a much safer environment at that point to increase exposure to portfolios substantially, go back to full weightings in equities when we have a clearer picture of where the market is going to head, not only just over the next few months, but over the longer term. That wraps up the show for the day. Be sure and get by the website, sign up and subscribe for our Before the Bell. It's our new three minutes on markets and money. It has its own channel now. So subscribe to Before the Bell so you get that notification. Of course, you're already subscribed to this radio show. So 
on our YouTube channel, so you'll get this one as well. Also at the website, our newsletter, Daily Market Commentary. We put out a ton of stuff. Mike's latest article all at the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. See you back here tomorrow.